Hi, everyone. It's Nika, the founder of Urban Remedy, welcoming you to the You Are Love podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. I'm so excited. We have Dr. Robert Lustig today. Dr. Lustig is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of San Francisco. He's become a leading public health authority on the impact sugar has on fueling the diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome epidemics and on addressing changes in the food environment to reverse chronic diseases. In his New York Times best-selling book, Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease, Robert documents both the science and the politics that have led to the current pandemic of obesity and chronic disease. Welcome, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nika. Great to catch up. Yeah, so I have so many questions for you, but I'm going to start out... With our funny story, so Dr. Lustig was the keynote speaker at a conference that was happening in Vail a few months ago, and I got off the plane, and a guy was standing there with a sign, and it said Lustig, and then underneath it, it said my name, and I just thought his name was on there because he was the keynote speaker, so I got in the car with somebody that works for me, and we drove halfway to to our hotel, and then... We get a call and they were like, hey, what happened? You were supposed to pick up Dr. Lustig. You guys just left him there. And so I was sitting in the car feeling so terrible that we just left you at the airport. So we turned around after like 45 minutes and drove back to the airport to get you. And I was so worried that you were going to be mad at us. But it ended up being a really fun um, event and fun getting to know you. So I just thought that would be a funny little story to start off with. Yeah, there's not a lot of public transport in Vail. So you know, I'm really <laughs> glad that you didn't strand me there at the uh, Vail airport. That might have been tough. Yeah, so it was funny. We had a, a fun time and your speech was super inspiring. And it was it was so fun to be at that event with you. So, you know, my goal in this podcast today is that people leave this conversation feeling empowered, you know, to make different choices related to their health based on, you know, all of the information that you have and the information that you shared in your books. And so I'd love to start out. My first question is, when in the history of the United States did metabolic disease become so epidemic? Well, that's a very good question. There was absolutely no concern about any of the diseases that we now call metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, those eight diseases. There was virtually no mention of any of those diseases until 1924. And in 1924, Haven Emerson, who was the commissioner of health of the New York City Department of Health, uh, noted that diabetes rates had increased in New York City by sevenfold in the previous 10 years. That was the very first warning shot across our bow that something was going on. As time went on, diabetes increased, although relatively slowly but heart disease went through the roof. And by 1955, heart disease had really dominated the day. And when Eisenhower got his heart attack in 1955, basically all hell broke loose and people wanted to know what's causing heart disease, what's causing heart disease. Well, the likely culprit for that 
was smoking. Smoking was the likely cause of heart disease. But the diet people started, you know, sort of coming out of the woodwork. And there were two camps back in the late 1950s as to the cause of heart disease. One was the sugar camp, because it turns out consumption of sugar correlated with heart disease very nicely. Right. And that was led by a British physiologist nutritionist by the name of John Yudkin. Now, Yudkin was uh, British. He was reserved. He was stayed. He was a man of relatively few words. And he was also on the other side of the pond. The other camp was led by a gentleman by the name of Ansel Keys. And Keyes was already famous in the United States because he was the inventor during World War II, the K ration, was the Keyes ration, the 12,000 calories, you know, in a little tin box that soldiers could take into battle. Oh, interesting. In 1952, Keyes did a sabbatical in the UK, and he noticed that there was a lot of heart disease. and People were dropping like flies of heart attacks. Mm. And so he looked at what people in the UK were eating, and they were eating fish and chips, which they uh, were. Yeah. And so he, appropriately or inappropriately, assumed that the cause of the heart disease was the saturated fat that the fish and the chips were fried in. And so he then went on to uh, evaluate uh, the role of diet in cardiovascular disease all over the world. And he ended up publishing a series of studies which were known at the time as the Seven Countries Study. The Seven Countries Study basically said that the uh, consumption of saturated fat correlated with the death rate from heart disease in those seven countries. The problem with that was that it wasn't seven countries. Mm. It was 22 Oh, wow. Wait, can yeah. I ask you a question really quick? What kind of fat at that time were they frying the fish and chips in? I'm just curious. Do you uh, know? Lard. 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 Okay. So saturated, you know, the ultimate saturated fat. Yeah. Beef tallow, lard, you know, I mean, basically, you know, animal-based fats. Okay. You know, not trans fat at that point. Um, you know, trans fats had, had entered our world. I mean, they were in baked goods. Right. But you know, uh, you know, this was true in countries that didn't have trans fats too. Okay. So, uh, at that point in time, you know, there was a big fight going on between, you know, the two camps, which was the cause of heart disease, sugar or fat. And this raged on through the sixties and early seventies. And then three things happened in the, uh, uh, 1970s which basically declared saturated fat the winner and threw John Yudkin under the bus. Number one, we learned about this particle that floats around in our bloodstream called LDL. Now we always knew there were lipids, but we didn't know about this particular particle called LDL. And we also learned that dietary fat raised your LDL, which is true. And then we learned that in large cohort studies, the level of LDL correlated with the prevalence of cardiovascular disease. So Keyes thought, well, if dietary fat is A and LDL is B and heart disease is C, well, A leads to B and B correlates with C, therefore 
A must lead to C, therefore no A, no C. Get rid of dietary fat, lower your LDL, and prevent heart disease. And that was the end of the debate, and that was the end of John Yudkin, period. And that's when the United States went low fat. And so what happened to the sugar part of it? It was just like they just thought sugar has no part in, in metabolic disease at that time. Well, that's a very good question. The very first dietary guidelines for Americans in 1977, you know, sponsored by the McGovern Commission, at first they said that we needed to cut back on our consumption of sugar and fat and salt. But the it, food industry went absolutely ballistic, and they were not happy with that at all. What they wanted was that uh, the USDA should tell us what we should eat more of, not what we should eat less of. Mm, interesting. And so what they said was that we needed to eat more fat-free products. And so that's when the pasta craze started. And you know what, what happened was sugar basically got left uh, at the curb. Right. And we basically went low fat. But when you take the fat out of food, it tastes like cardboard. It tastes terrible. Yeah. So they had to do something to make the food palatable. And so what they do, they added in the sugar. So even though the McGovern Commission's original draft said we needed to eat less sugar, that actually didn't appear in the final draft. Interesting. And did any of this have anything to do with the sugar industry at that point? Or is this before? <laughs> oh, boy, did it. As it turns out, the sugar industry had its thumbs on the scale all the way through. And my colleagues here at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, actually found the paper trail wow. that demonstrates the culpability of the sugar industry in altering our dietary guidelines and also uh, subterfuging uh, you know, all the real data on the role of sugar in heart disease. And uh, we, uh, they published several papers about how they've uh, changed NIH research uh, interests and uh, pathways and uh, what they did in terms of uh, marketing approaches and campaigns. And um, it's a, a, an American tragedy. So then once they changed those guidelines, what happened? Did any of the rates decrease or did they increase? No, they only increased. And now not only did we have diabetes and heart disease, we also had obesity too. And so even though the rates were increasing, nobody rang the bell or thought. I'll be honest with you. You know, as far as the, you know, government's concerned, nobody still rung the bell because nothing's been done about it. So, you know, I will tell you, this has been, you know, a difficult space to be in because there's very little in the way of governmental um, uh, intervention to try to fix the problem. It's so interesting because I would say like in the functional medicine space, it's really interesting because there's still a debate about like what are the best fats to eat? You know, do saturated fats really cause heart disease? Um, so what do you think, like if for people listening, what are the best fats that you would recommend consuming, you know, on, in your daily routine? So in my book, Fat Chance, I actually lay out the whole fat story. There are seven, there are seven classes of fats and they're all different. Now, the 
industry would say, well, a fat is a fat because they're all nine calories per gram, because as far as they're concerned, it's all about calories because they want it to be about calories, because if it's about calories, then, you know, what's their food? Their food is just like every other food right. in terms of calories. You know, this is their way of assuaging their culpability. This is their way of actually putting the onus on the individual, because if a calorie is a calorie and a fat is a fat, then it's not their fault. It's yours. Right. Okay, so they don't care that there are seven classes of fats, but there are. So here they are in order of health. The most healthy fats are the omega-3s. Omega-3s are heart healthy. They are brain healthy. They prevent Alzheimer's disease. They are the single best thing you can put in your body. The problem is they're relatively rare in our diet. You can get some alpha-linolenic acid or ALA, which is the uh, vegetable or, you know, um, plant-based omega-3 from various sources like flax, which is good. I'm not saying it's bad. And it has been shown to be protective against heart disease. That's good. However, that ALA has not been shown to enter the brain in any meaningful amount and has not been been shown to be converted into the other two omega-3 fats called EPA and DHA, eicosapentaenoic acid and dexahexaenoic acid. Those fats are absolutely necessary for neuronal function, for brain function, for neurotransmission, and also for brain structure. These fats can only be obtained from marine life. And so that's when people are taking fish oil. Right. So fish oil will have EPA and DHA, but only if it's wild fish. Farmed mm -hmm. fish don't have them because farmed fish eat corn and corn doesn't make omega-3s. Wild yeah. fish eat algae and algae make omega-3s. So the algae make the omega-3s, the fish eat the algae, we eat the fish. We get our omega-3s third hand, but yep. we need those um, brain-specific omega-3s. And a lot of people in America are not getting them. If somebody's a, a vegan, could they get the correct amount if they were eating some sort of... I've seen actually like algae supplements. Yeah. So algae, algae supplements, and they exist. Um, companies like Algorithm, you know, make algal oil. They have uh, DHA and DHA is good. And so there is a role for algal oil. However, uh, DHA is not EPA and DHA does not get turned into EPA. So EPA is very specific to fish. It is also, by the way, the fatty acid that gives fish its fishy smell. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually kind of hard to get EPA into other foods because of the fishy smell other than when you're eating fish. Right. So yes, algal oil helps, but it doesn't actually solve the problem completely. Okay. So it's an issue, uh, you know, and it's an issue for vegans. Yeah. And they need to know about it. Number two uh, on the list of, uh, from in descending order, monounsaturated fatty acids. So the standard one that we know of is olive oil. Olive oil is oleic acid. It's got one double bond. Now, olive oil, uh, uh, oleic acid is the uh, exogenous 
substrate, uh, ligand, for a transcription factor in our liver known as PPAR-alpha, which is a fuel gauge on, a liver, on the liver cell. Very important to make the liver run right. And so uh, olive oil is very important. And, you know, we know that and we're consuming a lot of it. There's a problem with olive oil, though, when you cook it. So okay. olive oil is actually meant to be consumed at room temperature, like on a salad. Right. When you, when you fry an olive oil, you heat the olive oil up to above 310 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. You've reached its smoking point, And what will happen is the olive oil, the oleic acid will flip. That double bond will flip on itself. And instead of it being olive, uh, oleic acid, now it's transoleic acid, a trans fat. You have actually made a trans fat in your skillet. Okay. And trans fats, as you will learn at the end, are the worst. Okay. So we need to eat our, our, our olive oil room temperature. Right. But we could pour, you know, you could maybe add olive oil to like your cooked food or something. Yeah, you know, oh, off the, yeah. Okay. No problem. Absolutely. Okay. Number three, polyunsaturated fatty acids. So polyunsaturated fatty acids are the, you know, like canola oil, omega-9s, if you will. They are, uh, they have multiple double bonds. And they're pretty good and they uh, are relatively heart healthy, but if you consume too much of them, you can actually cause immune dysfunction. And the same problem with omega-9s because what happens is they get to their smoking point and they turn into trans fats and they actually have more double bonds to be able to do the trans fat conversion. So you have to be careful with those too. Okay. Number four, the one in the middle, uh, you know, from one to seven is saturated fat. Now, saturated fat is neither good nor bad. Saturated fat is a way of carrying energy around the body. It is not good for you. It is not bad for you. People think saturated fat is the bad guy because Ansel Keys said so. Mm-hmm. Ansel Keys was wrong. Okay, I'm here to absolutely say Ansel Keys got it wrong, and he got it wrong on many levels. Okay, we now know that, but it took you know 40 years to figure it out. So really quick, sometimes people, because I use, you know, coconut oil or cacao butter in our bars, for example. So it's a very low sugar, you know, there's like three grams of sugar and like 12 grams of protein and it's high in saturated fat. And so I get that question. We get the question a lot at Urban Remedy. How do you, why is there so much saturated fat in this and is it bad for me? And so it's always hard to answer because there's so much conflicting evidence out there. So anyways, I'm just bringing that in because I'd love you to speak to that. That's true, but you've forgotten that coconut oil is actually a mixture of both saturated fat and medium chain triglycerides. It's both. Okay. Now, that's number five, medium chain triglycerides. Okay. So medium chain triglycerides are shorter fatty acids than the, you know, longer chain saturated fats, but they are carried through the bloodstream through a different mechanism. Uh, they, when they're absorbed in the intestine, they go straight into the portal system and go straight to the liver, as opposed to the saturated fatty acids, which are longer chain, which get converted into uh, chylomicrons and are carried around the lymphatics before they appear at the liver. So they have a different uh, disposal system and they uh, uh, flood your liver in a different way. Now, if all you're consuming is coconut oil and you're getting a dose of both saturated and medium chain triglycerides, and that's all you're getting, that's probably fine. You don't think it's the cause of heart disease? 
No, I don't think, well, not alone, it's not. Okay. But, but if you're consuming a lot of other stuff, you know, and, and particularly ultra processed food, and right. you happen to have one thing that has coconut oil, that coconut oil is not doing you any favors at that point. Right. Okay. Because you basically flooded your liver already. And right. At that point, that's when things start happening to the fat. That's not so good. Yep. Your, your, your liver only has a limited capacity to be able to deal with these fats. So medium chain triglycerides, you know, if you take in too many, it can be a problem as well. Okay. But I know that, you know, coconut oil is the darling of the paleo movement. And, yeah. you know, as long as that's all you're consuming, the only fats you're consuming, it's perfectly fine. Okay. Number six, omega-6 fatty acids. Now, you need omega-6 fatty acids. They are the precursor to arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid is the precursor to prostaglandins, leukotrienes, thromboxanes. These are all inflammatory molecules. Mm -hmm. These are the molecules of inflammation. They come from omega-6s. And omega-6s are in seed oils. So corn oil, you know, soybean oil, et cetera, uh, you know, which are, of course, are, you know, a lot of the commercial oils. Now, the good thing about those is they have a high smoking point. The bad thing about those is they are pro-inflammatory. And so you don't want to eat too many of those. You want to yeah. eat more omega-3s and less omega-6s, but we actually have it the other way around. We have a lot of omega-6s and very few omega-3s. And so we are driving inflammation and everybody's inflamed nowadays. And it seems like what you talked about before, when everybody said saturated fat is the villain, then everybody started eating the right. vegetable oils, you know, exactly. and which oh, is sorry. worse. Yeah, which is worse. And I mean, it's everywhere. You kind of can't even go to a restaurant and and not be exposed to some sort of seed oil. It's like all the salad dressings, everything is fried with it and it's cheap. And not to mention that the way they're processed, most of them, unless they're organic, are super toxic. Exactly right. So omega-6s are, you know, way overrepresented in our diet. Our, we, you know, we talk about uh, in medicine, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Mm -hmm. Now, optimally, it should be one to one, equal amounts of omega-6s and omega-3s. Nobody gets that. You know, what would be rational would be three to one or four to one. Our current omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in the American diet is about 25 to one. Well, no wonder so many people are sick. Yeah. How about that? And then finally, number seven, the devil incarnate trans fats. Now, trans fats are truly consumable poison. And the reason is because we don't have the enzyme to break the trans double bond. And where are people most likely exposed to trans fats? Well, baked goods. You know, I mean, the, the very first trans fat was manufactured in 1902. Uh, Crisco was patented in 1911. Uh, it's, uh, trans fats started appearing in baked goods, you know, around 1920. And, you know, basically they are the reason we have the 10-year-old Twinkie. Right. Okay. Trans fats don't go rancid. Mm -hmm. And that's why the food industry used it. Well, in fact, the reason they didn't go rancid is because the bacteria couldn't chew them up. Right. Because the bacteria don't have the enzyme to break that trans double bond. Well, guess what? Our mitochondria, our little energy burning factories inside our cells, they are refurbished 
bacteria. Okay, they have their own DNA for that matter. Okay, the fact is we can't digest those trans fats either. So for the exact same reason we shouldn't be consuming them is the same reason why the food industry put them in. Right. How stupid is that? That's stupid. That is really well, stupid. <laughs> in 2013, you know, that's when trans fats were banned. So we're not, we don't have as many trans fats as we used to. So that's good. But it took 45 years for the FDA to finally pull the plug on them, you know, and you know, that this is part of the problem. It's not the whole problem. Um, you know, the, the other problem, of course, is sugar. Right. So talk to us about sugar and, you know, kind of, can you weave, like just briefly weave in the, the, you know, you laid out the fats and a little bit of the history of metabolic disease, and then let's bring in the sugar part. (laughs) Well, wait, can uh, I, I want to say one thing really fast. I was on a walk with my mom yesterday and we were just talking about something and she goes, you know what? And she was born in 1949. And she goes, when I was a kid and even a teenager until like, you know, I was maybe 25 or 30, nobody had cancer and nobody had diabetes. And there's the word stress was like a new word when I was a kid. And I was like, really? And it was just so interesting to hear her perspective on that. And this conversation made me think of that. Well, um, you know, uh, your mom and I probably are about the same age, and uh, I agree. You know, these were not, these were not part of the lexicon. Uh, yeah. You know, that it's it's a much more recent phenomenon. Now, sugar's been going up for years, but it had stabilized out uh, in terms of co- uh, consumption because price equaled demand at a certain point, and so there wasn't a, an increase in consumption for quite a while. The thing that really put it over the top was the um, advent of ultra-processed foods. Because mm-hmm. there's only so much sugar you can put in a regular food. When they switched to low fat, did it make it higher glycemic? Because they were putting more sugar in the foods and you didn't have the fat to slow the insulin re- result. Absolutely. So I, I basically think there were, you know, there are several things that happened, but the three things that happened, and they all happened around the same time, was the advent of ultra-processed food in the mid-1960s, the production of uh, and uh, distribution of high fructose corn syrup, which started in America around 1975, and finally, the U.S. dietary guidelines basically saying, get the fat out, which meant put the sugar in, in 1977. So I think these are sort of the toxic trio right. that led to our current dietary debacle. And so in your field right now, um, what's kind of the, is the general consensus, not with you, because obviously you're, you know, you have a lot more information and you're exposing a lot of information, but what's the general consensus of like the American Heart Association right now and FATS? Are they still playing the old papers or are they kind of up to date? So so the AHA is very interesting. I used to be on the board of directors of the American Heart Association of the Bay Area. So I know the story pretty well. The nutrition committee of the American Heart Association led by a colleague of mine, a good friend by the name of Ron Krauss, basically made it clear to the AHA that saturated fat was not the bad guy that they'd gotten the fat thing wrong. And they know it. They do. And they have been slowly but surely 
backing away from that stance. However, they've never, shall we said, done a mea culpa in public. Right, right. They've never come out and said, we effed up. We got it wrong. We're doing the right thing, but, you know, other than admitting culpability and responsibility for making the mistake. Having said that, the American Diabetes Association, they have always said that sugar is fine for diabetics. That is insane. They say just, you know, take enough insulin to cover it. Wow. And to this day, they still do not admit that sugar plays any role in chronic metabolic disease. That should be criminal. Well, we're working on it, Nika. We're working on it. No, I know you are. And thank God. I, you know, I had an acupuncture practice for 11 years. And I remember a couple of times people would, that I was seeing came in and they said, hey, I got blood work done and I'm pre-diabetic. And I would say, all right, let's change up. I had studied a bunch of functional medicine. I said, let's change up your diet, get you on a low glycemic diet and, you know, blah, 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 the lifestyle stuff and exercise and all that. And they said, well, my doctor that I went to said, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, this is just the way it is. And I remember, and this was, you know, in like 2009 or eight or nine around there. And I don't know if that's still happening, but I could not believe that doctors were saying, this is just it. You don't have to change your diet. There's nothing you could do. And, you know, maybe you'll take metformin or insulin or depending on where you are. But um, it was mind blowing. Well, what medical students learn is that diabetes, type 2 diabetes is a chronic, unrelenting, unremittent, chronically progressive disease that never gets better and will ultimately kill you. All you can do is slow it down. That's what you learn. And even to this day? Even to this day. That is incredible. And of course, that is completely total hogwash. Yeah. You can can reverse type 2 diabetes. Now, the longer you've had it, the less likely it is to reverse. I do agree with that. But once you are declared with type 2 diabetes, that's the time to actually fix it. And the easiest way to fix it is to get rid of the insulin resistance. Stop the insulin resistance that caused it. Well, what causes insulin to go up? Only two things in my my book, refined carbohydrate and sugar. Yep. So people who get the refined carbohydrate and sugar out of their diet, whether they do it with the Mediterranean diet, whether they do it with the paleo diet, whether they do it with the Atkins diet, whether they do it with the ketogenic diet, basically... All of those reduce refined carbohydrate and sugar across the board. And you can reverse your diabetes, not needing medicines. Thank you for joining us for part one of our interview with Dr. Robert Lustig. Please join us for part two. Thank you for joining us at the You Are Love podcast. For more episodes just like this, please subscribe. This is Nika, and I'm wishing you a beautiful day.